this morning, <clears throat> uh, I want to speak on the subject of why I love Easter. And um, I, it, it's a great subject, <clears throat> and it's one I've preached on hundreds of times. And I didn't even realize that till I stopped and figured out how many years I've been doing Easter messages. And I always do two or three or four or five every Easter, and they add up quickly. But I'm a young man, <clears throat> and uh, so uh, this morning, <clears throat> uh, I just want to talk about why I love Easter. And, uh, you know, when I was a little kid, Easter used to be a fun time. <clears throat> I could probably... Well, I found more eggs and more candy than most, so I always enjoyed that. But uh, <clears throat> when I was born again and I realized that e the meaning of Easter is God and what Christ did for us, that I was born again, now <clears throat> really it has my highest devotion in life. I there's nothing more sacred to me than Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, as you read the Bible, the term Easter <clears throat> is only found once in the Bible. And you have to be reading the right translation to find the word Easter in the Bible. Uh, Acts 12.4. And it was a word that in the original means Passover, and it was the word Easter was used, and in a lot of translations, they use the word Passover. <clears throat> Doesn't change the point at all. The point is, Jesus Christ came into this world. Uh, we call it Holy Week, the week of his crucifixion. <clears throat> He came, he had a triumphal entry, he was crucified, and on the third day, he arose from the dead. Now this morning, one of the things that I want to do is give you a big view of Easter. Uh, one of the things that should take place in our Christian faith so many of these common truths, things that we've heard of all of our lives, I hope that God will help us to grow in our understanding of how profound these things are. Easter is a very profound time. <clears throat> it's when God unfolds the bruising of his son. The crucifixion and all that we're going to hear about in the weeks to come. <clears throat> An old Puritan writer named Stephen Sharnock, and he wrote a book called The Existence and Attributes of God. I'm going to take this quote from. <clears throat> but it's, uh, uh, it'll help us get a bigger view. Some of you, when I, if you hear what I'm reading, you better hang on to your seat. These are some 
thoughts that really keep your mind, they can put it in overdrive. It can uh, burn the engine out, fellas, <clears throat> as uh, you think about some of these thoughts about God. But Sharnock says this, God is an eternal God, and he knows all things as present. In God's mind, all things are one point, not a succession of things. God's knowledge does not depend upon the revolutions of time. Uh, his knowledge is outside of years and days. He comprehends the past and the future as one. He considers all things of eternity as one simple knowledge. God's knowledge is co-eternal with him. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Compared to God, all creation is reduced to nothing. The verity of changes in the world make no new objects in the mind of God. He does not know one thing now and another later. Though there is a succession of events as he is brought to as they are brought to pass, there are no successions in the mind of God. God knows what shall happen and the order that it will be brought upon the stage of the world. Now, I've read this several times, and I think about it. I think about it, but the easiest way for me to understand this is from Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. Listen to how Isaiah describes this thing of understanding God. He says, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways, uh, your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I say, Amen. God God's way of understanding and God's way of seeing things and God's way of thinking about things is far beyond ours. When we come to the subject of the crucifixion and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's thoughts are far, far more profound than any of ours. It is a sacred thing. It is a holy thing just to think about what Christ did. And I want to remind you that God's account of Easter is not some tangent of the Laramie Valley Chapel. This is an eternal message. This is to the whole world. This is God revealing his love and his will and his service to mankind. I've would ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you would please, to John's Gospel, chapter 1. And I want to talk about how relational 
Easter really is and some of the things that God says about this. In John 1.1, the scripture says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you skip on down, look at verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And if you squeeze this verse and work on it, let me tell you what you're going to find, that Jesus Christ was involved in creation. He spoke the worlds into existence. An incredible thing. Then it says, He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. He is the creator. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And friends, I'm going to tell you, when you come to know Jesus Christ, you understand life and you understand light. An incredible thing. And then it says, the light shines in darkness, and darkness did not comprehend it. I want to tell you this morning that most of the citizens of this world do not understand who Jesus Christ is. They don't understand who he is, and they don't want anything to do with him. And we see it. People say, well, I'm just trying to find God. Hey, you find God through Christ. And he came into this world and you need to know him. You know, the Gospel of John is one of the big ideas and the big pictures of the Gospel of John is to show that Jesus Christ was God, the deity of Christ. <clears throat> and in John 17, Jesus is, is praying, and, and, and you've got to understand, by John 17, things are getting very tense. The cross is almost here, and... Jesus is, is giving us, a. We, we get to look in and hear what he prayed. And in John 17, Jesus says, Father, verse 24, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold the glory which you, gave, which you have given me. And so he's talking about previous time with the Father. And I, I want you to think just a minute here about the sacredness of the Trinity of God, how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit uh, coordinated and they harmonized all of the plan of God that would be executed on planet Earth. And then notice there in the latter part of that 24th verse, Jesus is praying. He says, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Before there was ever a planet called earth, the Father and Son were doing and discussing and planning. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you've sent me. I have declared to them your name, 
and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. I love the John 3.16, for God so loved the world. The profoundness of God's concern for the world. Then uh, Job, he and God were visiting. Job had challenged God a little bit, and that's a dangerous thing to do. But God was talking to Job, and he said, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Job, where were you when I made this place? Now, not only are we dealing with a God that existed in all of eternity past and a God and a trinity that has planned all things, but we can look and, and go on and put that up, if you would, please. Uh, <clears throat> uh, the creation is our purpose, the purpose of man, the relational reason. And just quickly, let me say this. When you think of the universe, and the more you understand and the more we understand the vastness of outer space and the universe that we um, live in, and you think of the earth, the earth is the only place in the universe where life can exist. And why? Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made man. He made everything on this earth, all the animals, all the vegetation, all the life-giving characteristics of this earth. And the last thing God did was make Adam, put him in the garden. The garden was a specially prepared place for mankind. And then he, Adam named all the creatures. And then God says, for Adam there wasn't found a helpmate. No one to correspond with him. God made Eve. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, listen to these words by God. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over all of it. God specially made man in his image. Elephants don't have a relationship with God. All the creatures of this earth, only man has a soul, and only man has the ability to have a relationship with God. That's an amazing privilege. Now, here in Genesis, uh, 
I, I love those words in Genesis one thirty one. God saw everything that he had made, and it was very good. The perfection of Eden, the perfection of the original creation, the purpose of God and man being able to have a relationship was paramount in creation. Then in Genesis 3, we see the sin of man occur. Man broke his relationship with God. Adam or Eve and Adam disobeyed God. And in Genesis 3, 7 through 9, the Bible says the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew they were naked. And notice the first thing they did. Prior to this, they didn't worry about their dress. They were clothed in a garment of light. All of a sudden, things have changed. And it says they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, always before, Adam and Eve, they craved, they wanted to have a relationship with God. Now they hear God walking in the garden, and they ran and they hid back of the bush. And, you know, uh, one, uh, the, the, the scriptures are translated this way. They hid themselves from the presence of God. And then the text goes on to say, God says, Adam and Eve, where are you? Now, an all-knowing God knew where they were. He knew everything about it. And do you know, today, one of the greatest mistakes we as human beings make, we think we can hide from God. Friends, we cannot hide our thought. We cannot hide anything from God. May God help us to be transparent and honest and open with him. So the first encounter, Adam and Eve had prepared for it. They were now modest. They had uh, garments of leaves. Or, or, yeah, garments of leaves. And then in verse 15, we see after God had confronted them, then we see the curse. And in Genesis 3.15, we see the announcement of Easter. Look with me. Genesis 3.15, God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you, Satan, <clears throat> and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Did you know that is the first mention in the Scripture? of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. One of the things that you can't have Christianity without the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. We celebrate at Christmas over God's announcement that 
the Virgin Mary, not only was she with child, but she gave birth to the sinless Son of God. And notice what Genesis 3.15 tells us. He, so she's going to have a son, shall bruise or literally crush your head, Satan. The idea that this virgin-born son will crush Satan. And then notice, as you shall strike his heel. That's the picture of the crucifixion. Revelation 13.8 says, calls Jesus Christ the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God knew that this was going to occur. He told them in the garden, this is going to occur. Now, what was the message of God to Adam and Eve now that we've got this big problem of sin? Adam and Eve were be, had God had told them what was going to be the consequences of their sin, and now how are we going to do it? And a strange thing happens here in that third chapter in verse 21. The, the Lord said, Adam, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made them tunics of skin and clothe them. Now, just a minute. They already had on coverings of leaves. And after God gave them the consequences of their sin, he says, now come over here. I need to make for you an acceptable covering. And it's very clear that at that point, some animals lost their lives. God made them coverings of skin. And he clothed them. Now, I believe that God at that point began to teach us a principle that goes throughout all of the Bible without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And all of the Old Testament resoundingly teaches this principle. Blood, sacrifice of animals, was a temporary covering for sin. Now, did you see in chapter 4, Verse 4 and 5 is the proof of this. It says, verse 4, Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Abel brought an animal sacrifice, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry 
and his countenance fell. One boy did what he was told, bring an animal sacrifice. The other boy brought the first fruits of his crop. And God says, He did not respect Cain in his offering. Last Sunday morning when Pastor Martin preached, you remember he read to us from Hebrews 12, 24, which says, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel did a temporary covering. Matter of fact, you can take the whole Old Testament and again and again and again they made the sacrifice of animals and those were the picture of that which was to come. Animal sacrifices were temporary sacrifices. The faith of man. Think of that just for a minute. What was the point? Man had to believe the message of God. This is what God said. This is what we do. Abel did it. Cain didn't. And Another illustration of that early in Genesis, before the flood, you get to the sixth chapter, and that's the chapter where things are really getting bad. If you can imagine, we start out from creation, everything is perfect, then man sins, then uh, man starts to repopulate the earth, and we have from Adam and Eve down to Noah, several generations there, and uh, those who believed believe that God is telling the truth, and not only is he telling the truth, but we've got to obey him. If you have saving faith today in your life, you believe that God is, and that you believe he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You have to know that you have to obey what God said. Our faith is an undeserved gift by God to man. Faith is totally undeserved. Man left to himself cannot hear, you cannot understand, you cannot respond to the message of God. God's grace gives and sustains spiritual life. Listen to Genesis 6, 7 and 8. And so the Lord said, this is God speaking, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Now that is when God is fed up. He said this Humanity is so bad, I'm just going to destroy them. 
both man and beast, creeping things and the birds of the air, and then these tragic words, for I am sorry that I made man. It just, it's just a mess. But I love verse 8, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah experienced God's unmerited favor. Think about this. God tells Noah, I'm going to destroy this earth and everything in it. Noah did not have the privilege that you do here today. He didn't have the privilege to go to a group of people that were meeting and say, oh, they're believers. They believe what God said, and they trust the Lord. He was the only one. And then God gave him an incredible project. I want you to build a boat, build an ark. Because I'm going to destroy this world by water. Today, people want to be honest. This whole globe bears witness to the fact that there was a worldwide flood. God flooded the whole earth. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, think of this. He and his children, his family, were on the ark, and everybody else perished. Noah knew of the judgment of God, and Noah knew of the grace of God. Then you can follow along in Genesis 8, 20 and 21, and you'll find out the, one of the first things Noah did after he gets off of the ark, saw the earth flooded, he offered a blood sacrifice to God. That continued On in those early chapter of Genesis, I like Genesis 11.1. 1. The whole earth had one language and speech. Can you imagine that? Generations had got, come, and the whole earth had one tongue. Then man got off track again. And we call it the Tower of Babel, but it was man's disobedience to God and man's effort to rule God out, and God scattered them. And you say, well, how did he do that? He changed their tongues, and only people who could understand each other got together. And then in that same chapter, it says, in the days of Peleg, the earth began to divide, and we had continental drift. And we had people with one tongue here, and 
what? Those would have been exciting days, don't you think? And then God called, Genesis 12, God called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees, and he says, Abraham, we got in a pagan world again. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And then I love the last line of, of Genesis 12, 3. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham, out of your line, the Messiah will be born. And Jesus was born of the seed of Abraham. He was born in that lineage. And you can read the Gospels and see the different lineages of Christ. Abraham offered sacrifices. You remember the big one. He thought God was going to require him to sacrifice his son that he and his wife had waited and waited for. She was a, almost a, she was in her 90s when she had her first son. And God miraculously provided a substitute lamb. And friends, God has miraculously provided a Savior for humanity. When Moses, by the way, um, as you're reading your Bible from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50, what's God doing? He, we call it the patriarchs. But essentially, God was building a family up to become a nation. Then he raised up a man called Moses. What did Moses do? God says, Moses, I want you to take a bunch of slaves in Egypt and whip them into a nation. Wow, they were being held captive by the most powerful nation on the earth at that time, Egypt. And God, through his mighty hand, delivered Moses from Pharaoh, and they leave four or five million people, leave Egypt as slaves. And then Moses has the task of helping all these slaves become a holy nation under the Lord. And that's what the Pentateuch's about. End of the book of Deuteronomy, God, God's getting ready to let them go into the land he had promised to them. They go in under Joshua. And God wanted them to understand, and they didn't get it, that he was Lord and he was God, and besides him there was no other. And they kept getting their eyes off the Lord. 
Every person who came out of Egypt, 20 and older, wound up dying in the wilderness because of their disobedience, their unwillingness to believe God. So, the tabernacle, the temple, the prophets, all pointed to the coming of a Messiah, to the hope that this nation had. All the Old Testament looks forward to that. And then we're going to have to skip to the the next thought, and that's that the message of Easter is complete. How is it complete? It is complete in Jesus Christ. He is the key to understanding all of Scripture. The Old Testament points to him. And... He is the completion of Easter. We think today of Christ's coming. He came to fulfill the law. He was the sinless Son of God. This week I was majoring or, or meditating on Isaiah 53.10. 53rd chapter is a beautiful chapter, but it's written 700 years before Christ came. And it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to to bruise his son. Now, what do you think of that? It pleased the Lord, it pleased the Father to bruise his son. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper his hand. I'm still, I can't get those words out of my mind. It pleased the Lord to bruise his son. Another quote that I have from Stephen Charnock uh, on this passage, he says this, God had more delight in forgiveness than the grief at his son's suffering. And you'll remember in John 17, or in, in the Gospels there, Jesus prayed, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. It says, regarding God, for he never repented of it, though the Savior besought him with tears, and how great pleasure it must be that he swallowed up all grief at his son's suffering. Yea, it seemed to love, he seemed to love our salvation more than he loved the life of his son. Since the end is always more amiable than the means, the means only lovely as they respect the end. <clears throat> 
friends, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Here Christ is calling out in his agony on the cross, in the garden. And then you remember they put the sour vinegar in his mouth when he had asked for a drink and his next words were some of the most immortal words of all in all of Scripture. Jesus said, it is finished. It's finished. What did he mean? He meant the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. It meant he crushed the head of Satan. It meant he suffered and bled and died. <clears throat> In Hebrews 9, 22 through 28, it says this. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of these things in heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things with better sacrifices than these. Now, I love this. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now appeared in the presence of God for us. And then he goes on in verse 26, and he says, He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the end of the age, he hath appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And friends, he made the once and for all payment for our sin. There is no hope in this world outside of faith in Jesus Christ. He is the eternal, the sinless, the precious Son of God. Our last point, the message of Easter, is clear. And what is clear? God is concerned about our relationship with him, not our religion. Hell will be full of people who thought they had the right pedigree. A lot of people in Jesus' day, they were proud Jewish people. They had long heritages. And we don't go to heaven over our heritage. A lot of people like to, <clears throat> to put Christ in a box. Why, if you're baptized by our church or you join our church, you're going to make it. No, you won't. You must have your faith in a living, risen Savior 
who conquered sin and who conquered death. I don't care what your family background is. I don't care what your church background is. Without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you are without hope. Well, you're pretty dogmatic on that. Yes, I am. Uh, And you may want to turn to Revelation chapter 20. Now, to get to there, you realize that Christ arose from the dead and after he showed himself to many, it says he ascended into heaven and he's going to come back in like manner. Someday, Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth and he's going to live on planet earth and he's going to rule and reign a thousand years. That's called the millennial kingdom, rule and reign of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of things I'd like to say about that, but let me characterize it a couple of ways. One, in the millennium, there'll be perfect leadership, perfect government, perfect worship. Uh, There won't be but one place to worship in the millennium, and that'll be through Christ and Jerusalem and through his teaching. And... Imagine, for all this time, people have the privilege to hear him teach, to see him visibly, and how he perfectly cares for people. Now, in Revelation 20, there's a nominous statement there. Verse 7 says this, now when the thousand years had expired, when the millennium's over, Satan will be released from his prison. During the millennium, Satan will be bound and he will not function in the millennium for a thousand years. For a thousand years, no one will ever be able to say the devil made me do it. The depravity of man, the human heart of man, it'll be a perfect environment. So we won't have a world system. The big issue is man's corrupt heart. And then it says, after Satan's out of his prison, verse 8, he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. He'll just go all over the world. And he's going to gather them together to battle. Satan still thinks he can overthrow God. And this next statement, I cannot get out of my mind. A thousand years of Christ's rule and reign on earth How many people are going to follow the devil? It says, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went went up on the breadth of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, 
they've surrounded Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now I want to take you back to Jesus and his ministry here on this earth. John 3. Jesus and was speaking, and he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Friends, we have to have a change from the inside out. God, the Holy Spirit, has to regenerate our hearts. Notice what Jesus says in John 3, 7. Don't marvel that I say unto you, you must be born again. Now get this next verse. Jesus is describing regeneration. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. You cannot tell from where it comes or where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Friends, you cannot put God in a box, in a box and you cannot put conversion in a box. It's God meeting with you, God meeting with me, wherever we're at, and he starts speaking to our hearts, and he changes us from the inside out. And it's a God thing that creates that personal relationship with you so we can go back and enjoy Eden, fellowship with God. Do you know the most blessed thing about eternity future is we're going to get to walk and talk and be with Christ forever. And then that third chapter of John 16 and 17. I love this verse tonight, today even more. For God so loved the world. In eternity past, he cared. When he made creation, he cared. When he saw his son dying, he loved us more than the suffering of his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then this last verse, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You know, one of the things that I am so thankful about the Laramie Valley Chapel is there that message of telling people has never waned from this pulpit. It doesn't wane in the hearts 
of many of you who daily, when you can, what do you tell people? You know, you got to know Jesus if you want to have eternal life. You've got to trust him. And I can't help you. That's between you and God. God's got to do a miracle in your heart. You've got to be born again. I feel sorry for people who say, well, I grew up in a Christian home and I had a good church, but they've never been born again by the Spirit of God. I'm telling you, when you have been born again, that's the most transformative thing that you will ever have happen in your life. I have a good friend in Billings. His name's Bill. And Bill told me one time, he says, you know, I don't have any problems anymore, Pastor. He said, in 1965, I took care of the big problem. He says, I may have a few bumps once in a while, but I don't have any big problems because I have trusted Jesus Christ. Friends, if you can say my sins have been forgiven, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt I have eternal life. What a gift. It's the grace and mercy of God Almighty. May God work in our hearts and may each of us find grace in the sight of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for the great privilege to talk about the grand and glorious truths of your word. And how Easter has been the hope of mankind since the Garden of Eden. And I pray that today you would open hearts, minds, and understanding that people could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.